The John Morris Show, episode 143. The John Morris Show. Your life on code. Ladies and gentlemen, John Morris. Everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. It is Monday, October 10th. I've got a good show, I think, coming up for you here. <laughs> kind of a boring weekend for me. There's no, no Nebraska football, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do when there's no Nebraska football. So it gave me some time over the weekend to think a little bit more about today's show. And I think I got some good stuff coming up. So we're going to get into the death of YouTube. You may have kind of seen this going around a little bit. There were what looked like some changes to YouTube's policy. And there are a lot of, you may have seen some of the YouTubers that have come out talking about how they've had some of their videos demonetized and so forth. And so <laughs> there was a kind of for a while there, this whole death of YouTube kind of uh, kind of meme or theme going around. And so I want to address that. I want to talk about, I want to talk a little bit about what's really going on. And then I want to talk about how to survive that. And whether you're a YouTuber now or not, the things that I'm going to talk about are incredibly important if you plan to do anything online, whether that's freelance work, you are going to start to, to you know, maybe build your own app. About the only scenario where it really wouldn't apply is if you're just going to be applying for a web dev job with some company and you don't ever plan on doing anything on the internet. And it really, any business that you're in, it's going to apply. So Again, we're going to get into that. Plus, I have in the kind of question and answer section where I answer your questions uh, and comments, I have a listener comment that you won't want to miss. Very eye-opening that I want to go through. But before I get into all that, I want you to imagine this for a second. So imagine it's 40 plus years from now. And imagine you're on your deathbed. And your family is all gathered all around you. You have kids, grandkids, maybe even great-grandkids. Maybe you have brothers or sisters that are still alive. And they're all gathered around you. And as you lay there about to say goodbye to those people in your life forever, you take a moment to look back and reflect on your life. And for a lot of this, this isn't some imaginary scenario. This is, this is going to happen at some point for us. So I really want you to, to think about this because this is something that you most likely will be facing at some point in your life. So when you take a moment to look back and reflect on your life, what will you see? And how will that reflection make you feel? Will your, your life be something that makes you feel proud and satisfied? Or will it make you, will you be riddled with regret? Will you be someone who passes happily, satisfied with what you became and what you accomplished? Or will you kick and scream and stomp your fist <laughs> your way out of this world? Because you're desperate for just a few more moments to make things right, for one more chance to make your life what you had thought it would be. So this weekend I was watching a college football game day on ESPN. There's no Nebraska games, but I was watching some of the other games and I was watching the, the kind of game day pre-show that they do. And toward the end of it, 
and you might have seen this. If you haven't, it, it's worth taking a look. You can just Google Lee Corso 20 years and you'll see, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. There'll be a video in one of the links there. But towards the end, they did a montage montage celebrating 20 years of Lee Corso's headgear predictions. So at the end of the show, they always have their game of the week. He predicts it and he uses the headgear from whatever team he picks usually to to make his prediction. It's kind of a fun little thing that they do if you haven't seen it. So they, they've been doing that for 20 years now. This is the 20th kind of anniversary of when they started that. And so when the montage got all done, they left a little time for uh, Lee Corso to say a few words. And he could barely get anything out. He broke down on live TV. And so as he sat there sniffling with tears running down his face, he thanked his co-acres, he thanked the fans, and he thanked ESPN for not getting rid of him after he'd had his stroke a few years back. It, I don't know, you may not know this, but he, he'd been doing the show for a while and he had a stroke. And you could tell a difference. You know, you could tell it affected him. He, he had trouble, a little more trouble remembering things and kind of getting what he wanted to say out. And ESPN, for all intents and purposes, could have got rid of him, but they didn't. And so he thanked them for not getting rid of him when that happened. And as he was kind of there crying and <laughs> trying to get his words out, the whole crowd started chanting, Corso, Corso. And he just broke down. And he just he couldn't keep it together. The tears kind of started streaming down his face. And he just couldn't talk at that point. And so they, you know, the co-inkers kind of got through this scene or whatever. But as I was watching it, I was just thinking to myself, I can only imagine what that moment must have been like for him. And when you watch it, it gives you some perspective. It lets you see what is really, truly important. And I think so often we get caught up in the day-to-day, you know, trivial stuff that we lose our sense of what matters. And it's easy to get really, really down about our failures and our shortcomings and the things that aren't going right for us, and frankly, too high or too up about our successes and our accomplishments. But I'm a firm believer that we have to keep our eye on the prize. And I believe with all my heart that the prize is how we'll feel in that moment, laying on our deathbeds, reflecting on our lives. Will that moment be a moment of satisfaction or one that is full of regret? And what we do now will determine the answer to that question. So I'm going to tell you about one way that I firmly believe that you can make sure that that moment is full of satisfaction. And I know it will be easy for you to sit there and to brush off what I say to write it off as self-serving for me, or, oh, you've said this a thousand times, or you're just being selfish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But don't fall for those traps. It's important to understand where I'm coming from from this. And, and this really sunk in listening to a guy by the name of Ben Settle, and he kind of went through this, and, and it really hit home for me. But I feel that I have a moral and ethical obligation if, to, to show you things that I really believe are going to help you get where you want to go. Oh, if I really believe that I have the solution 
to a lot of the problems that a, a lot of you are facing, the emails that I get, the, the tweets, all this stuff, I have the solution. I truly believe that. And so believing that, I believe it is my duty to constantly tell you and push you about it. Because at the end of the day, if we all sit here and we dance around the issue and, and kind of patty cake around it, nothing happens for you. You get nowhere. And all the things that you're, you're struggling with, you're having issues with that are holding you back from making your life what you want it to be, those remain. And so, again, I believe it's my moral and ethical duty to tell you about things that I think are really going to help you. So I don't want you to fall for those kind of mental traps that can happen. Those easy kind of excuses and easy ways of brushing things off. Really stop and take a second and think. And remember that moment 40 plus years from now. And if being right or saving a few bucks or whatever excuse comes to mind for you is worth that moment not being everything that you want it to be. Because I firmly believe that small actions today can have a lasting impact tomorrow. So with all that said, one of the ways that I, again, firmly believe I am confident that you can use web development to chase that lifestyle to, to bring meaning to your life, to have significance, to make sure that you're remembered after you're gone is through PHP. And that's simply because of my own experiences with it. It's PHP that put me at the top of the World Trade Center attending a mastermind of multimillionaire online marketers. That was PHP that did that. It's PHP that landed me development gig, gigs with really well-known and famous online personalities like Inc. Magazine and Lewis Howes and Michael Hyatt and, and others. That was PHP. And it's PHP that has allowed me to work full-time from home for almost seven years now and to be able to homeschool my boys, to work on projects I want to work on, to work the hours I want to work, to be able to go and do the things that I want to do, to have the freedom to do with my life what I want. And I don't say any of that to brag. I don't. I say it because I believe that PHP can do the same for you. I really do. And I believe that my course PHP 101 is one of the fastest ways to both learn PHP and a set of marketable skills that will allow you to transition into the IT career you've always wanted in as little time as possible. And as soon as I say that, this is when those mind traps come up. Oh, he's just trying to sell me something. Oh, I don't have the money. Oh, this. Oh, that. Be careful. You could, you could do that for, for anything. Any course, any tool, any product. You could make that same argument. And what happens? Chances are you sit in your little bubble being quote unquote right, going nowhere. Again, I firmly believe that this is one of the most effective ways out. 
And I feel it's my duty to tell you that. So write it off as, oh, he's just trying to sell this or that, or he's just trying to make money or this or that. At the end of the day, in my opinion, it's you who will ultimately suffer from that. So if you're someone who can see through all that, who can you know, keep your eye on what's really important and understand that there are going to be people out there who will try to sell you things and you may not like the way they do it, but the thing that they're, they're ultimately trying to persuade you about is in your best interest. It will help you get where you want to go. If you can see that, then I encourage you to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash php. You can learn more about the course, see if I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and you can enroll. All right, coming up in the show, we're going to get into the death of YouTube and how to survive, as I mentioned, and then again, a listener comment that you won't want to miss related to one of the recent episodes that I've done here on the show. All that coming up after the break, you listen to The John Moore Show. JohnMorrisOnline.com. You know, it's kind of funny. Every time someone uh, joins my email list, I ask them a very specific question. I ask them, what would you say if I could, if I told you I could teach you how to master PHP in the next few months? And I get a lot of interesting answers. Now, I get a lot of people who, you know, they say, sign me up. Where do I start? Let's do this, right? I get people who are a little more skeptical who say, um, it would depend on the details, you know, if it costs, what it costs, etc. And then I get people probably on the, the most skeptical end who are like, well, what does it exactly take to master PHP? And all these are really great questions. Now, let me ask you this, since you're here listening. What if I told you that you could get started learning everything that you need to know to master PHP, all the foundational skills that are necessary to move you out of maybe that job that you're working right now that you don't really like and just get yourself into an IT career. Oftentimes, people do it making more than they were making before. But even if you could just make the same and start doing it in an IT career as opposed to like I used to do, which was wearing my little chicken costume walling around in Greece all day, cooking chicken. Imagine if you could learn what you needed to learn, get the foundational skills you needed to start that process all for just seven bucks. What would your answer be? I hope your answer would be a resounding yes, because I know I'm going to go all keep off my grass old man on you, but I remember what it was like when I was coming up and the option to get all of that training in one place simply didn't even exist at that time, unless you wanted to read through a 500-page PHP manual, which I didn't want to do. But today, not only is that option available, but it's only going to cost you 7 bucks to get started. So if you're someone who's serious about learning PHP, about making a career in the IT industry, about getting out of whatever you're doing now that you might hate, and getting into the tech industry, you don't have to be a PHP coder forever. That's the thing. You can, If you want to get in all the fancy new stuff, Node and Python, and well, Python's not new, but Django and all this other stuff, all these frameworks and everything that's out there, that's fine. But one of the fastest ways to get out of where you're at now and into a an IT career 
is through PHP because it's simply the most popular server-side backend language that you're going to find. The job opportunities are huge, and there's companies out, out there that are just starving for PHP developers. Clients out there starving for people who can create PHP applications. So again, if you're someone who's serious about making that happen, then I want to encourage you to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com php. You can start taking module one of my PHP course for just seven bucks. So today, skip the latte from Starbucks, head on over to johnmorrisonline.com php, and let's get started with your PHP career. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, I want to get into the death of YouTube and how you can survive it and really business principles that are going to serve you whether it's YouTube, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's whatever. Whatever the the site or the source uh, of the attention or the audience happens to be, these are things that can serve you and make sure that you're always in a uh, powerful or you're always in a position of control where you have the majority control over what's happening. And you don't completely kind of sell yourself out to one company or one site or another because it's very dangerous to do. So if you haven't heard about this, uh, what essentially happened is YouTube made some sort of change. We'll get into exactly what they did. But when this all first happened, nobody really necessarily knew exactly what happened. But there was some sort of change that suddenly uh, a number of YouTubers, fairly well-known YouTubers who have large audiences and followings and so forth started seeing a number of their videos being demonetized by YouTube. And they started looking into it. And it, the, the reasoning given by YouTube was that it didn't meet meet the kind of content quality guidelines. And so they started looking into it and it, you know, videos that contain cuss words or seem to cover certain sensitive topics. They're even so it went so far as people saying that videos that were from certain political views and so forth, those were the videos that seemed to be getting demonetized. And again, you may have seen some of these videos out there. There was a, (laughs) most of the major kind of players out there, uh, uh, you know, maybe not some of the huge ones, but uh, most, a lot of the major players out there seem to have this happen and and do a, a video about it. So, it all started with a guy by the name of Philip DeFranco, and he had done a video saying that his uh, videos had been demonetized and he was being censored. And it, it a little bit hyperbole, but he did have over a dozen of his videos that were demonetized. There was another kind of well-known YouTube channel called Vlog Brothers. They actually post a screen cap of the message or the notification that they had gotten from YouTube the couple of their videos that had been demonetized. And the interesting thing about theirs, it was really two things that were completely unrelated. One was like a comedy kind of skit. And then uh, another one was more of a like a sensitive, I think it was a political topic. It had to do with uh, Syrian refugees. And both of those videos had been demonetized. So it, it really had people confused, didn't understand what was going on. And people started kind of building this theme of YouTube was starting to get into censorship and that this was going to be the death of YouTube. And there was a lot of people talking about they're going to be leaving YouTube and 
you know, what they should do to, to, to kind of get around it and just a whole kind of snowball effect of, uh, of this whole thing. And, but as you looked into it, you know, while the, the policy did seem to be a bit vague and the automatic kind of alg- algorithmic, <laughs> algorithmic flagging system that they use seemed to be a little kind of clunky uh, in identifying people that were true policy breakers, the truth kind of slowly came out that those policies had been in place for a while. They'd really kind of always been there. And the videos that were demonetized on a lot of these channels had probably actually already been de- demonetized for a while. Those creators had just not noticed because of the way the, the notice notification system worked and so forth. And the change that YouTube made was actually to update and upgrade that system to make it more obvious to the creator that a a video had been demonetized. So, you know, for example, Philip DeFranco, those 12 videos, they had probably already been demonetized for a while. He just hadn't seen it because it wasn't obvious. You had to like go into the analytics and so forth. And so YouTube made a change to make it more obvious and then created a system of notifying those uh, creators so that they could appeal the demonetization. So the change wasn't actually in the policy at all. And it wasn't like YouTube started going around demonetizing a bunch of uh, videos. Likely those had already been demonetized and they were just upgrading the system so creators knew and they added kind of a system for them to be able to appeal the demonetization. And so over time, some of the the YouTubers who had complained about the demonetization have now seen their videos remonetized. Vlogballers, for example, saw, uh, I know at least one of their videos had been remonetized. Um, and and so uh, it, it kind of came out that this is what was really going on. And funny because those creators probably never would have, like that never would have happened, the remonetization because they probably never would have noticed and because there was no really good uh, way of appealing in place before, they, they probably never would have got those videos remonetized. So it actually turned out to be a benefit for the creators. So that's what happened. But through all of this, for me, it brings up a larger point. Even though it wasn't exactly what everybody kind of thought it was at first, it does bring up a larger point because there is always the possibility that that kind of thing can happen. And it kind of goes back to the old old saying, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, and you especially don't want to put all your eggs in one basket that you don't own, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Facebook, etc. And we've seen this a number of times with Facebook pages where they've redone the algorithm and these pages that were really successful and doing really well and probably making a decent amount of money doing it, all of a sudden it's like they fell off the map because of Facebook changing its algorithm. And so, again, it brings up the larger point that that's a risky thing to do. And so I wanted to go into this because I want to talk about primarily the solution and what you should do and what really all of us should be doing in any business, but especially uh, online business, what all of us should be doing 
in order to make sure that things like this don't affect our business, our income, our lifestyle, etc. What you can do to protect yourself from this. Because the problem is a lot of these YouTubers, their sole source of income is YouTube monetization, YouTube ads. And so they are completely 100% at the mercy of YouTube. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And if you look at some of the more savvy YouTubers out there, you'll notice that they've started to do things where YouTube isn't necessarily their sole source of income. And that's what I really want to get into. And so there's, there's really three things in my mind, one of which is kind of the most important. Uh, and we'll get into that. But there's three things that you can do to make sure that this kind of thing won't affect you. So as an example, uh, and again, this isn't to, to toot my own horn because I was in a much more precarious position a, long, a, a while back, a few years ago, and made some of the changes, uh, not because something happened, but I just, I, I felt it, I knew it was a problem. Uh, and and the only reason I'm in a better position now and can talk to you about this is because I saw it, I, I researched it, and I was able to make the changes. So, you know, uh, the the bottom line for me is if my YouTube ad revenue went away, it really wouldn't affect it. My YouTube ad revenue is kind of tied with another source for second or last in terms of where my income comes from it's it's towards the bottom like last second to last something like that so if you youtube demonetized all of my video every single one of them tomorrow sure i'd lose some income but it wouldn't completely ruin me or take me out of business matter of fact if youtube decided for some reason to not only demonetize my videos, but to completely just remove them and ban my channel altogether, which I've seen happen uh, with certain channels over over on YouTube. They decided to do that. Even my traffic, the traffic that I get to my website, again, it would take a hit. YouTube is a good source for me, but it it wouldn't be devastating to me. I'd still continue to to move on because of some of the things that I've done, mainly to diversify uh, the way that I run my business. So I've, I've spent a lot of time myself doing this. And again, I want to talk through these kind of three steps that can make sure that you're not at the mercy of any sort of site or business or anything. And again, you can apply these principles, whether it's online, offline, you really want to make sure that you're not, it's good to have a, 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 a good source of income. Don't get me wrong. You're not going to turn it down, but you don't want to become 100% dependent on it because you end up uh, very anxious if that one source of income goes away first off and you become kind of beholden to that one source. And that's always a bad place to be in. So the solution, again, the first step or the first part of the solution is diversifying your platform. You never want to rely 100% on a site that you don't control. And this is the big point, a site that you don't control. You want to use them 
to build your platform, but you don't want to use them for solely 100%. This is actually something that um, Michael Hyatt in his book Platform talks about. And he talks about uh, using all of these different sources, but using your own website, which you control as your hub. That's kind of the central place where everything kind of happens. And you ultimately always point people there from all of these other sources. So uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, they're assets and they're things that you definitely want to build up, but you always want to, more importantly, build your own platform, your own hub, your own website, and make sure that you're able to reach your audience from there and in multiple different ways. Uh, so again, that's it's kind of two parts. It's making sure you have a hub of your own website of something that you yourself control. And then also having multiple different ways to reach your audience. So that's why I'm always talking about my YouTube channel. I'm always talking about my Twitter, always talking about my own website. There's always all of these different areas that I'm pointing people to so that if one goes away, I still have this other one that I can point people to where they can find me and so forth. And one among those is my own that I control. Even in in some regards, your own website, you have to be a little bit careful because you know, as you build your site, a decent amount of your traffic will come from uh, Google search and, and, and other different search engines. And so again, you have to be a little bit careful not to get too dependent on that. And so again, this is one of the things I've been doing. I'm still doing this now. You know, you've probably noticed lately I've been doing kind of a push over to the audio podcast, subscribing on iTunes and Android and and SoundCloud and so forth. The reason that I'm doing that is it's a way of diver- diversifying. So I'm not completely reliant on YouTube or my website or Twitter or Facebook, but it's also a platform where I have a lot more control. Because yes, iTunes could say we're blocking your your podcast. You know, Android could say we're going to block it. SoundCloud could say you can't upload stuff here anymore. But those listeners, I can still reach them. I can still do the podcast because I could set up my own RSS feed and have them, you know, subscribe using one of the many uh, applications that are available on Android and iOS, where you can subscribe directly to podcasts via an RSS feed. So there's there's a there's a lot more options available out there. And if someone were to try and shut me down or something were to happen with some sort of business, I have a lot more leeway and a lot more uh, that I can do in order to get around that. So again, it's not only just a different way, but in in a security sense, it's it's a better way because I have a lot more control over it. And you really don't see uh, a lot of podcasts shut down on iTunes or Android or whatever. You just don't see that a lot. Again, we could get there, but those signs will come and you can adapt and adjust and so forth. So I've been focusing on building my podcast for that reason. The other thing that I think is worth learning, and it's because when you get this stuff down, pretty much everything else could go away and you would still be able to reach your audience. And that is advertising and specifically Facebook ads and AdWord ads. And so I spent a decent amount of time in the last year or so really digging into Facebook and AdWords ads 
because yes, you have to pay for them, but the reality is, is most of the stuff that you have to do to get any sort of traction out there, you're going to have to pay a little bit for. So you're paying for it in, in one way or another. But if you can get good at running ads, you can, you can, <laughs> you can reach as many people as you want doing that. And you can always have a way of getting in front of people. And so because you, you're paying for it and now it becomes a lot harder for those companies to, to, you know, turn you down, to shut you off. They can still, but you really have to, you really have to mess up. And there's so many different advertising kind of companies out there that, that you can access and have millions and millions of people that you can reach that it becomes really, really difficult for you to be just completely shut out. So again, diversifying your platform integrating ads into that. I mean, you can pay pennies a view uh, on YouTube. You can pay pennies a, a click or I pay pennies a lead really for my mailing list over on Facebook. Uh, and, and it can be a really, really effective way of getting uh, in front of people. So diversify your platform. The second thing is to diversify your business. So you have your platform, which is all about your traffic, your lead generation, etc. But you also have kind of your business model where your revenue is coming from. And this is one of the ones that this is really what kind of kicked me into gear, kind of gave me a kick in the butt over the last year to get stuff together because I had started, I'd got into affiliate marketing a little bit. I hadn't done that for a number of years, but I kind of, I found a site, you guys have heard Udemy that I really like. I think they do a lot of quality work. I think, you know, the the platform is good. A lot of the courses are really good. I just really like it. And it's really tailored for you guys and what you're interested in. I mean, a lot of the really successful courses over there on are some sort of development courses. So I just really liked it and wanted to promote the stuff. I just thought there was a lot of good stuff over there to promote. So they had an affiliate program. I figured if I'm going to promote it, I might as well uh, make a little money while I'm doing it. And I got into it and wow, it just kind of took off. But as I was sitting there and this was taking off and it was really going well, I noticed that, uh, a big chunk of the revenue that I was generating was coming from this one site and really one course on that site. Now, again, I wasn't complaining but I also knew that that was risky, that that course could go away at some point, that that you know that uh, instructor could decide to take it down, or you to me could decide they wanted to do something different with it, or something could happen to be really really easy for just that one course or that one site to go away. And so I started getting into diversifying the different things that I offer. So I have my own courses I offer, I have affiliate stuff that I offer through a number of different partners, but I also have multiple courses on Udemy that I really like and that I promote and really just got into diversifying um, the, 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 the revenue that, that I was generating with that. And so, and, and now I'm in a lot more stable, comfortable place because I took the time to do that. I took, did take a revenue hit for a while because that one course sold really, really well, but over the long term, I think it's ultimately going to be better. So 
the way that you can do this now, again, I'm that's just my example, but uh, you've probably seen YouTubers that do this in multiple different ways. So you'll see YouTubers who they monetize their videos, maybe they sell their own courses and so forth, or they have t-shirts that are available, or they have little stuffed animals that are available, and they have they they, they slowly develop a product line to go along with their channel. And the whole point of that is, again, to diversify their business, to diversify their revenue so that they're not, it's A, because they probably make more money doing it, but B, it's because they want to make sure they're diversified as well. They're not 100% beholden to YouTube. So if their YouTube revenue goes away, well, that sucks, but I've got 10 times that revenue in this product line that I have here. Oh, Grumpy Cat, I think is a really good example of that. They have all sorts of stuff available through their product line. They've gotten into, uh, I, I don't know that they have necessarily ever had a YouTube channel. I can't remember, but, uh, they've gotten into all sorts of stuff. I think they even had a TV show or animated series or something like that for a while. Like they've just taken that kind of idea and diversified it in so many different ways. And I think last they were in the millions in terms of yearly revenue last I had seen about it or whatever. I, I don't know what's happened since then, but you know, that was a good example of a company that has, you know, taken this, what's happened with them online, kind of this movement that they created and really diversified it into a well-established kind of full-fledged business. For you, what that means is, especially as a web developer, there's lots of different ways that you can diversify. So for example, this may not just be related to YouTube. Let's take Upwork, for example. Let's say you're working on Upwork and that's where all your revenue is coming from. Again, that's nice, but it's probably a good idea to not become too dependent on it because Upwork could make some sort of change or they could suddenly decide that you know, they want to ban you or, or suddenly you drop in the rink. Something could happen and if that's your sole source of income, then you would really be hurting. And so it's a good idea to diversify your business to not only have multiple services available. So maybe you over time, and we've talked about this and niching down and then building your, your kind of service offerings with different niches, usually three to five. So having a multiple niches that you can offer in case one market completely dies or gets disrupted in some way, you still have two or three others that you can kind of lean on for your revenue until you figure out you know, a different product line or whatever, right? So uh, again, not only multiple service offerings, but also not just services, have services available, maybe have some products available, maybe do consulting or coaching, maybe as a web developer, part of your revenue is also teaching other web developers. And so you're in, in you got to be careful not to spread yourself too thin. There's a fine line between diversifying and spreading yourself too thin. And you don't want to start off immediately and try to go into five different things to be d diversified, okay? But as you get your service offerings kind of lined up and you've kind of nailed that down, you've got the marketing down, you've got you know, you've, you've you've got clients coming in, you've got the delivery, it's all running smooth. That's when you can then look at expanding your business. Okay, how can I get into offering products? Maybe I can create, you know, a paid WordPress plugin or Joomla or Drupal, if they have paint, I assume they do. I'm not really too aware what goes on in those markets, but, or maybe you could build, you know, some sort of app 
or service that you offer, you know, like Wufu Forms or SurveyMonkey or whatever. Maybe you could get into that and offer some sort of product. Or, and then maybe on top of that, you could get into teaching and having different courses that you teach that are available. And so there's lots of different things that you can do, but you want to, as you build your business, to make sure that you diversify it in ways that make sense for you so that you're not beholden to one you know one thing and if that one thing goes away you still have other parts of your business that you can kind of lean on so again diversify your platform diversify your business the last one then is the one that i think is the most important and whatever you're doing i don't care if you're going to be offering services i don't care if you're going to be building app try to build the next facebook i don't care what it is start building an email list right now this is the one like the one real regret that i have with my it career you know a lot of the mistakes you make are learning this was something i knew i knew that i needed to be doing and i just i waited i hesitated start building your email list now and i'll tell you why despite all of the talk you hear about how email's dead and social media this and social media that email is still by far the number one way that I reach people so the number one way uh that I make money with the stuff that I do it 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 still is the dominant player out there because something showing up in your email box is far more likely to get your attention than something in a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or whatever you don't get you don't get a notification about every tweet that goes through your Twitter feed or every Facebook post that goes through your stream. Most of us, every email that hits our actual inbox, we see it. And so it's still a very, very powerful way to reach people. The second part of the email list is that you actually own it. So even if, say for example, I use a software service called Aweber. And so they kind of provide the software, the, the service really, to allow me to collect uh, email addresses and then be able to send out emails to those email addresses. So they're the software service, but they don't own the email list. And it's, it's very particular. It's not just some nice thing that they do. It's really by law because they're, the, the people that gave their email address, they gave it to me. They didn't give it to Aweber. Aweber is just facilitating it. So I'm actually the one that those people gave their email address to. That's who they believe that they were giving it to. And that's who they are giving it to. And so I'm the one that actually owns that list, those, that list of email addresses, not Aweber. And with the way the spam laws are and so forth, that's really, really important and not likely to change anytime soon. So the nice thing about a mailing list is that you own it. So if Aweber decides, hey, we don't like you, that's fine. I still have to be able to get my email list from them. So I can download all of those emails in a CSV file and I can go over to another service and I can upload those email addresses. And now I still have access to those people. Or I could build, if I really did something stupid and nobody likes me, I could put it on my own server. I could there's software out there that allows you to run 
your email list from your own server. Now that's clearly not ideal. There's a lot of reasons why, but the point is, is that you own the email list. You own those names and email addresses. And no matter what happens, people can't take those from you. So it's the most secure thing that you can do to secure access to your audience, which is the whole point of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and so forth is making sure you have access to those eyeballs to to that audience and you can communicate with them. So again, it's far better in terms of security. It's also, in my opinion, still far better in terms of actually getting your message in front of people. You got to know what you're doing. You can't just, you know, you you can't just write really bad emails and expect people to stay on there. But uh, it's still, uh, generally speaking, far better than than all of the other things that are out there. So, again, diversify your platforms. Make sure you're in multiple different places. Diversify your business. Make sure you have a kind of robust product line as you grow, and then build your email list so that you really kind of take iron grip control of your audience and and your customer base, your subscriber base, so forth. And no matter what happens, you'll still be able to reach those people. Right. So that is my kind of solution to all of the death of YouTube scare out there. The things that you can do to make sure that you're not affected by these things in the future. And you don't have to worry because you've built a solid set of platforms, a solid business, you a solid uh, subscriber base and audience base that you have control over. Coming up, we're going to get into your listener questions. You'll definitely want to stick around for this. I got a comment over on Patreon from Raul that you won't want to miss uh, related to some of the the podcasts that I've done here recently. And I think we'll really give you a sense of how to take all of the stuff that we're talking about here and actually put it into action. So we're going to go through that coming up in the next segment. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. You know, one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of developers make is they make learning how to code much harder than it has to be. For example, I see a lot of developers who think the list of skills that they need to learn to master PHP is pages and pages and pages long. It's not. Now, I've said this before, and I will definitely say it again, but there's a foundational set of skills that you need to learn in order to be functional as a PHP developer, meaning that you can execute on projects and get paid. This is the fallacy that is so prevalent in the PHP developer community, that there's this ideal set of skills that you have to learn And that you have to be the absolute greatest developer in the history of mankind in order to be able to get paid to code. You don't. You simply need to be able to execute on projects. I talk about end results all the time. You need to be able to deliver end results to clients. Because that's ultimately what they want. But when you focus on these foundational skills and learning only those first, the things that will allow you to execute on projects, what you realize is that you can start getting paid to code much faster than you probably ever thought because you haven't set this idealistic, unattainable bar for yourself to reach before you allow yourself to take paid work. 
You can start now when you can execute on a deliverable, when you can complete a, a single project, when you can create a contact form or a business website. When you can execute on that, you can start. And you can start then building the life that you wanted that you got into this all for the, in the first place. Instead of continuing to slave away at some job making somebody else rich. Anyway, you can learn these skills in my free course, The Beginner's Guide to PHP, which you can enroll in at johnmorrisonline.com slash learnphp. And it's going to teach you these foundational skills so you can get started right now. Again, it's a completely free course that you can take at johnmorrisonline.com slash learnphp. Don't wait on this. Head over there right now and get started building that life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, I'm going to get into answering some of your questions and comments. So the first one I want to go through is from True Transient over on YouTube. And this was in relation to a video I did about, I think towards the end I mentioned, and I've mentioned before on this podcast and a number of other places, you've probably heard it a hundred times before, but the one thing that most developers don't do is they, you know, they build up their really, they, they learn the skills they need to learn. They build up a really nice portfolio. They put up their profile and say Upwork or whatever, and they they put a lot of work into it, make it look really nice, and then that's it. And I advise that the next step is getting into creating content. Like Gary Vaynerchuk says, if you're not creating content, you basically don't exist these days. So getting at YouTube and, you know, answering questions on Stack Overflow and Quora, blogs, etc. Creating content relevant to the people you're trying to attract. And so his question was, how would tutorials on your expertise drive potential clients to your profile? Wouldn't that just bring other freelancers to your profile? And that's a good question. And honestly, something that I could see people thinking as a result of, if you're just looking at my channel, because I, (laughs) in going, in doing some of the stuff that I recommend, realized that I, I like the teaching part more. And so I transitioned into doing that, which is kind of nice because you can do that when you do this stuff this way. But there is a very effective, and I did this for a while initially at first, there is a really effective way of using the content that you create that, yes, might attract other developers or freelancers to actually attract potential clients. And so I answered him over on, uh, YouTube there, but I want to go through this answer a little bit and, and, and talk about it because it's a good question. I, I could see why people would say, well, won't that just, att- if I do a tutorial on a PHP form, won't that just attract other web developers? And so it, again, it's a good question. So, so there's three things about this. First off is when you do this, you're going to snag a lot of DIYers. And I've probably got, I would say probably the majority of my clients have been this group. They're people who are building a website, they're trying to do it themselves, and they get fed up and they say, screw it, let me just hire somebody. And when they go to do that, if you're the person who 
that whose tutorial they were watching and whose they really liked and really thought you did a good job they just couldn't make it work chances are you're probably going to be the one that they contact especially if at the end you say hey if you just want me to do this for you then you can contact me at such and such and then you send them off to your upwork profile or your website or wherever you're sending people to learn more about your services. So you're going to just snag a lot of DIY people that way. That's the first thing. And it, again, for me, the majority of the clients that I got would probably fall into that group. Second, it's kind of similar to why you'll see certain companies, especially in more kind of tech-related type industries. I think of car manufacturing when I think of this. But they'll show their kind of behind-the-scenes processes, their manufacturing processes, or how their product is built. It's why they do that. Because, you know, they'll do videos of the car plant or the quality of materials, how they pick the materials, how they quality check the materials, the attention to detail they have when in, in building and, and constructing and so forth. You know, if looking at all of that and seeing them do that, you could say, well... You know, if you if you see how it's all done, won't you just build the car yourself? Well, no, <laughs> because I don't want to build a car. And the reason that they do that is to really kind of sell you on the quality of what they do. And so when you see the the effort that goes into picking the materials and the quality control and the attention to detail in the pro- the manufacturing processes and the, all of that, you kind of get sold on, wow, they really, if they do, but assuming they do, you really get sold on, wow, they really put a lot of effort into it. This is going to be a really quality car or really quality chair or really quality camera, whatever it is. So it sells you on their product without being really salesy or hypey. You just get to see how it's built. So it's the same if you're someone who offers forms to people, you know, you're building PHP forms or contact forms or whatever. And you do a video just showing exactly how it's done. Other developers that want to learn how to do that, that are going to watch your videos are never going to hire you. That's the thing that you have to be aware of. Other freelancers, other developers, they're never going to hire you anyway, because that's not why they're there. But those DIY people or those people who do a search uh, on Google and your YouTube video shows up first and they, oh, let's check this out. And they click on it and all of a sudden they see you going through in painstaking detail, covering all of the gotchas, maybe even some they didn't think of. And they see you do it. They're going to go, wow, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. I, I want this guy or this gal to build my thing for me. So it it. Again, it has a dual role of attracting DIYers who who may hire you. It also has a role of selling people who might potentially hire you uh, without really coming across as salesy and so forth. And the thing that you'll notice or note is that the other developers, the other freelancers will be the ones who bring you the clients in a sense. Because it's those other developers and those other freelancers who will like your YouTube videos. They'll share them, you know, all of that stuff. And that they're the ones that'll bring the exposure to it. 
and they'll be the larger group of viewers by far. But from that, you you know, you'll siphon off whatever it is, 5% or 10% of the people that view what you do will be potential customers who then will contact you and want to hire you. So, you know, you, if your video reaches a thousand people over the lifetime, then over the lifetime, you know, you might get a hundred clients or 50 clients or whatever it is from that. But <laughs> that's a very, very effective way of getting clients. The third thing then is, and I think I mentioned this in that video, at the very least, I don't think I said your videos have to be actually coding tutorials, but your content doesn't actually have to be all DIY how-to stuff. And that's something that I maybe don't talk about as much, but you can, you, what you ultimately want to do is just do content that would be of interest to your target market. So as an example, if you build landing pages, you could do a, vi a video on the five principles of a high converting landing page. Now, the thing to understand that just particular about, say, a landing page is the people who want a landing page built for them are probably have some sort of business goal. So it's going to be either a sales page selling a product or service, or it's going to be some sort of email opt-in page to get subscribers and so forth. Chances are it's going to be one of those two things or something closely related to that. So you as the person building that page, you have to understand when you go into that market, just knowing the technical, like how to write the code isn't going to be enough. You're going to have to educate yourself on, hey, what makes a good landing page? What makes a landing page convert well? Because the people that are going to be hiring you, that's ultimately what they're going to be, they're going to care about. And so the technical side of it is, is one thing, but if you bring to the table the fact that you know something about how to make a high converting landing page, that's going to really set you apart. It also becomes good fodder for content to attract those people to you because that's the type of information they'll be looking for. You know, a business owner isn't going to be looking up coding tutorials, you know, unless they're DIYer or, or whatever, but they're going to be looking up how do I make my landing convey landing page conversion rates higher? And then you're the one creating that video. And at the end of it, you say, oh, by the way, if you just want me to like create your landing page for you, then go on over to suchandsuch.com. So again, the point is you have to do, you want to do videos or you want to do content that is relevant to your target market. So it doesn't have to be all DIY how-to stuff. So you're not necessarily just showing always the tech side of things. You're showing the business side of it to attract the right audience. And then you just make your pitch at the end of it. All right. So those are the three kind of different thoughts I have on that. And again, it can be very, very effective method for getting clients. Next comment comes from Raul over on Patreon. So to give a little context here, Raul had contacted me on Patreon and sent me a message. By the way, that's one of the advantages of being a supporting listener over on Patreon is that you can send me messages and I do answer them. And so we had kind of had a, a kind of went back and forth. He was, I recently done an episode on niching or finding the right niche your, or finding your niche in web development. And uh, he had contacted me about that and asked me if he, his niche was too general or, or too, 
too broad. And so he'd had kind of a back and forth. I'd give him some advice on what to do in order to kind of niche down a little bit tighter and find a, uh, you know, a more, uh, maybe a smaller niche that he can be more competitive in because he's the one he wanted to go into had some fairly established competitors and so forth. So anyway, after that exchange, he wrote me back. I think it was pretty much the next day. He said, I can't believe it. I honestly can't believe it. After doing some research and niching down on my Upwork profile to WordPress landing pages, one day after that, I already have an invitation to a project that I can actually do. Now, it's only $100, and the client wants me to rebuild a landing page, but I'm still going to accept it. I watched your lightning responsive module two a while back and remember the three main factors you talked about, which, by the way, you also get that as a supporting listener over on Patreon. So he said, I'm really going to work hard and try and wow the client with the design I go with. I honestly can't thank you enough. Even though this is only one more client, I'm confident with that with more research and slash personal marketing, I'll only need a few more clients and time to reach my current income goals. So there's a couple of things I want to point out about this. Obviously, you know, I, I've talked a lot about the, the importance of picking a niche in web development and trying not trying to be just everything to everybody. Um, and this is kind of some proof that that kind of thing works. It took him one day after he niched down a little bit uh, in order to get an uh, invitation to a project that that he can actually, you know, he can actually do. Uh, I'm assuming he probably hadn't got any invitations before that. So it was something that was pretty exciting for him. But I want to point out kind of two things here. First off, one of the thing, one of the reasons why, and this is kind of what we went back and forth with in our kind of our exchange over our Patreon. One of the reasons why I constantly harp on smaller and smaller niches is exactly the what happened with him. He decided, okay, I'm going to pick a niche and I'm going to do landing pages. It's a decent enough thing to get into. And so he started looking it up and researching it and realized, wow, there's some really established freelancers, competitors in that niche in uh, over on Upwork. And it's going to be hard for me to compete directly with them. And this is, so the way around that this is why i push this so hard the way that you still win and can get jobs when you are faced with people competitors who are more well established if you're new this is your way through all of this so the way that you are you compete is by being more specific right so a lot of these established web developers are going to be in these big broad niches because they have this huge job history and they can you know, they can still show up at the top of these searches and look good uh, for these really broad niches. But when you get down into smaller niches, people just have this tendency. They see WordPress landing page versus landing page. And if they want a WordPress landing page, they just, in their mind, they just automatically assume the person that specializes is going to know more, is going to be able to do it better. They assume because that person has actually worked with WordPress and knows more about WordPress in particular, and that's all they focus on. So they must be an expert in WordPress. Now, that may or may not be true at all. Hopefully, you're an honest person and you make that true, but it may not be true at all. But that's just what people think. It's just how our minds work. And so the way that you out-compete established competitors 
is by niching down. And that's exactly what he did. He niched down to a tighter niche, to a smaller, more specific niche. And as soon as he did that, he saw some results. And I, I imagine for him, when as soon as he did that, it clicked. Everything that I've been talking about clicked. And he saw it when he saw it actually happen. And that's kind of the second point that I want to bring up with this is I could, I could, uh, I could see the kind of the curmudgeons, the, the kind of know-it-all people out there who, who like to always question everything saying, well, there's one, it was one job. It was an invitation and it was only a hundred bucks. I mean, let's not get, let's not get crazy here. And, and you have a point, but what you're missing is that it's clear by the way he's talking here that something clicked for him and now he actually understands how it works. He understands what to do in order to, uh, to, to be able to get this to happen for him. And that's really ultimately the key here is knowing how it worked. You know, there's a lot of people out there who've had success and they really don't know why they don't really don't know what happened. And so when you're in a position where you really don't know why or how it's happening, that's hey, you'll take it, but it's also kind of scary. And suddenly something could change and it could go away and you have no control. You have no idea what happened. You, you just, there's nothing you can do. You're helpless. And what I don't want for you is for you to be helpless. And that's why I talk about this so much is it's really about understanding exactly what to do so you can do it over and over and over again no matter what happens and let's say your market gets completely wiped out you can simply go to another one you know exactly what to do in order to get traction it's like i think about uh, youtube you know when i started my youtube channel and it took off i didn't i had no clue why i didn't and i spent a lot of time figuring out what happened and what i could do and i know exactly what i would do if for some reason my YouTube channel exploded or got banned or whatever, I know exactly what I would do. I know <laughs> I I have no questions about whether or not it would be successful or whatever. I know just exactly what to do in order to get traction, to start building an audience and, and, and get going. So uh, it's knowing what to do, not just how it's not just the result, but it's how you got there. And so again, I think for him it clicked and a big part of it is simply understanding how to research and find different niches and then be able to you know pick one go into that niche be able to create uh marketing and and position yourself as an expert in that niche and then as you gain kind of notoriety in your market being able to expand that out and grow your business so uh, very excited for Raul and really wanted to share that with you. If you want to go back, I think episode or two, I talked about how to find your niche in web development. I recommend you listen to that episode. And another plug for my 10 episode challenge, uh, recommend you go back and listen to the last 10 episodes so you can get on caught up on everything that we're talking about and make sure you're up to speed. And then also kind of gives you an idea what's covered in the podcast. And hopefully at that point, you'll subscribe to the podcast as well. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to like it so they know that you like this kind of content. If you know somebody who could benefit from hearing all this, I'd appreciate it if you'd share it with them. And if you haven't yet, 
be sure to subscribe. You can do so over at johnmorrisonline.com slash podcast, and you'll make sure that you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next time.